2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. And then we're running on over the page um, to the end of chapter 2, verse 11, if you want to know where we're going. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to me, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son, Jonathan, are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son, Jonathan, are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close behind him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and, he, and called to me, and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, how is it you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on high, your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, 
The bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned for two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Do you know that feeling of sunshine um, on your face? You know, the the warmth on your cheeks, uh, sun heating up your skin, uh, the world feels easier, uh, better, warmer, lighter somehow. Sorry, I just realized uh, we're in January and we're in St. Peter's of all places. Um, the sunlight, it's um, when uh, the sun shines without any clouds in the sky. But it really is the loveliest feeling, isn't it? Loveliest feeling. It's somehow comforting. I actually heard a, a really long podcast explaining the science of why it is so good. I'll spare you all the details, mainly because I don't really understand it. But the science even says there are all sorts of reasons for that feeling. Ask me about that later if you'd like to know more. But why am I telling you this? Uh, In a nutshell, that feeling of sun on your face, uh, it's David's way of describing the big purpose of Samuel. Uh, This storybook of Samuel is teaching us what it is like 
to have a good king ruling over us. Uh, Turn with me briefly to the end of the book, 2 Samuel chapter 23, page 331. And here we've got David's last words. You see that, verse 1? And what's the last words that he wants us to know? Chapter 23, verses 3 and 4, are you there? When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, well, what is that actually like? Well, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. It's life, isn't it? Life. Sun on our faces, or indeed, rain making the grass grow, lush, vibrant life itself. We all know that feeling, don't we? And that is what it's like to have a just king who fears God ruling over us. And it's what it's like, isn't it, to have Jesus as our king, isn't it? So if you ever get lost in this marvellous storybook, which is very easy to do, the, the stories are wild and complicated, hold on to that image, that, that feeling That is our goal um, of what David thinks we learn from this book. And I wonder, though, if deep down we really need to hear this. Because I think deep down we find this so hard to believe. Uh, That feeling living under a good king does in fact actually feel like this. Why is that? Why do we struggle to feel this? Well, it's at least because we have so few examples of what just leadership actually looks like. I mean, when we read this story, David is almost inhumane in how just he is, at least in the first 10 chapters of this book. But also, I think also often, because we don't actually want anybody ruling over us, just or otherwise. Um, Even a good king who knows us better than we know ourselves, who will do everything for our benefit, I think we just don't want them ruling over us. You see, the Holy Spirit breathed out this book long before Jesus so that we had a full working prototype of what a good king looked and felt like. Uh, This book helps us understand what it means for Jesus to be our king and for us to want a king a bit like David. I mean, a king who... Um, doesn't just um, who doesn't want sunshine shining on their faces all the time? Who wouldn't want that? We need to know that following Jesus as our King is like stepping into the light. Um, it's the place of summer, of warmth, of happiness, of life itself. Uh, let's dive into our chapters. And and so you know where we're going. Uh, We're going to spend the lion's share of our time in chapter one today and only really skim very rapidly over chapter two um, to get to uh, chapter three, verse six, which is apparently our brief for the day. Um, The end goal of today's chapter um, is chapter three, verse one, like Karen pointed us to. Chapter three, verse one, turn there with me. Chapter three, verse one, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And that's our big picture. That's what's going on. Long and complicated civil conflicts in Israel. And David's going up 
and Saul and what remains of his house is going down. And our key question has to be why? Why is David going up? What is it about David that has him going up? And the answer to that is our point for today. Why is David on the up? Because David is still humble. David is still humble. See, of course, this shouldn't really be a surprise to us. Remember Hannah's song from last year, chapter uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2? Um, it taught us to expect, as we've been thinking about all morning so far, that the humble will be lifted up and the proud will be brought low. But you see, just how humble David here is, is quite extraordinary. And that is what we're going to feel in our story today. Um, to Samuel, it starts with a great succession problem. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1, after the death of Saul. What's the obvious question? Who next? Who will take over from Saul now he's dead? Who's the next king? We know from 1 Samuel that God has anointed David. That happened some 16 chapters ago, believe it or not. And the full takeover of Saul's throne doesn't happen until chapter 5, verse 3, which, by the way, is a total of seven and a half years away. So we're still... Five chapters spanning seven years away from the goal. Long time to wait. And the action to get to that point is really wild. Lies, murders, civil wars. So who is next after Saul? I mean, we're surely all grabbing our Bibles and screaming at the pages. Surely David's next. That's obvious, right? But here's the thing. David is not in the ideal position. Have a look. He's in exile, Ziklag, miles away from the action. David's been fighting a totally separate battle to Israel, mainly because Saul really wanted to kill David. So David's in the dark, fighting his own battles, basically as, as a Philistine general. His family have been raided. David has no idea what Israel is up to. He must have felt tiny, weak, and insignificant. And so much of our chapter today, it has dramatic irony. You know, when we, the reader, we know everything that's going on, yet David is totally um, clueless. He doesn't, he doesn't know what's going on. Have a look with me, verse 1. It's so tantalizing, isn't it? Um, after the death of Saul... When David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. Now, of course, with our one Samuel antenna up at this point, we should instantly be very excited indeed because of those words striking down the Amalekites. Now, if the word Amalekite means nothing to you, there's a little Amalekite highlights reel on your handout to check out later to fill you in. Don't look at it now, though. It's homework. Um, But to sum it up, This is what it's saying. To Israel, the Amalekites, they've been like, I don't know, a a wild pack of wolves perpetually hunting Israel, picking off the young, the weak, the vulnerable from the edges of Israel. They are a horrific nation. Um, Ever since Exodus 17, they've been Israel's enemy. They were, in fact, so evil that they sacrificed their own children. 
That's that kind of nation. Which is why God commanded them to be destroyed. God didn't want their thinking and their evil practices to infect Israel. Now, that verb there in chapter 1, verse 1, to strike down, it's very strong and very vivid. Striking down the Amalekites actually is precisely what Saul had failed to do. And it is the very reason why the kingdom was ripped from his hands. It's the reason why he died, ultimately. And it is what David now rightly does in his place. So where Saul failed, David now succeeds. Yet nobody on the ground would have even noticed David's victory. But it was reality. And there's far more dramatic irony to come. See, it it took three days before word could even reach David of Saul's death. But then, fortunately for David, a strange man comes along. And here's our main story for the day. Verse 2, the stranger. The stranger's a total mess, isn't he? Clothes torn, dirt on his head. He's in mourning. This could be big news. And suddenly, the stranger becomes strange news delivery man. Uh, News which he is intent personally to tell David. We might wonder why that is. But first, he pays homage to David. Quite right, too. David is anointed king. And David asks the very obvious question. Where do you come from? Stranger delivery newsman informs him, I have escaped the camp of Israel. And we suddenly presume he, he's surely one of Israel who fed the field. David desperately asks, how did it go? T- tell me. Second half of verse four. Israel fled. More than can be counted like dead And let's not forget the key detail for you, David, Mr. Next in line to be king, Saul, and crucially, Jonathan, his son, are also dead. I wonder what tone of voice the stranger delivered the news. Do you think he said it grandly and and kind of proudly, almost hearing the choir singing Zadok the priest in his ears, as as in effect he announces the coronation? The king is dead, long live the new king, which must be you, by the way, David. This is surely phenomenal news for David. Life is finally looking up for him after all this time. See, if it were anybody else, any other potential king in waiting, David would generously reward stranger news delivery man and then rise up, ride into Israel and receive the crown. That is all if it were anybody else. But this isn't anybody else, is it? Remember our points? David is still humble. He won't grab hold of power, even when it's gifted to him like this. This is David, slow to seize the throne, David. Humble, kind, and trusting God in all matters, David. So what does David do? Like Karen so helpfully helped us see, there's no dance of joy as he is now king. No, verse 5, David is desperate to know the details of the story. He zones in solely on Saul and Jonathan. How do you know that Saul and Jonathan are also dead? Never mind the armies of Israel. Tell me specifically about those two. 
That's what I care about. The strange news delivery man goes on. Perhaps you might think, surprised at the further questioning. Verse 6. By chance, I just so happened to be on the Mount of Gilboa, you know, as you do, wandering to the corner shop for a pint of milk as the battle was taking place. Rest of verse 6. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. He must have had a crown on his head, making it obviously him obviously to be Saul. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. In short, very bad day for Saul. He's about to be killed by the Philistines. And so far, we, the readers, are trusting the stranger, aren't we? We know from the final chapter of 1 Samuel, which in fact is just before this moment, as we read the book through, that Saul did indeed die in Gilboa. And he definitely loved his spear. Saul and Jonathan, they're the only two people in 1 Samuel to use a spear. This man appears to us so far to be a really reliable eyewitness. Then comes the key. Strange news delivery man reveals himself to David and to hypothetical Saul. And it's a very poignant moment. And here there's more dramatic irony. Irony. Because as readers, we know from 1 Samuel 31 that this is where the story diverges from the truth. It's like we can see the trap that David could now fall into and David wouldn't even know it. How could he know? The tension is palpable. And of course, like all great lies, strange news delivery man, he sticks as close to the truth as he possibly can to make it believable. We know that stranger news delivery man wasn't there being asked by Saul to put him out of his misery and perform effectively euthanasia. That was his armor bearer. We know that Saul definitely didn't want anyone uncircumcised to kill him and inevitably mistreat his body. We know, too, that his armor bearer even refused to do this euthanasia as he didn't want to be killed uh, because he didn't want to kill the Lord's anointed. So Saul had no other choice but to fall on his own sword. But David has no idea, no idea at all of that happening. Verse 8, who are you? I am an Amalekite. With the stranger's identity now revealed, David's jaw would surely have been on the floor. So should ours. And David's just finished killing them from verse 1. And as if, as if that immediate jaw-dropping reveal wasn't enough, the Amalekite just dives into verses 9 and 10 as he confesses to killing Saul, and he even produces the crown and the armlet to prove it. What a fool he was. He was a liar. What actually happened with strange news delivery man, we will never really know. He certainly lied, that's for sure. And it's not hard to imagine this lone Amalekite chap potentially hiding in the bushes, seeing if he can gain a buck or two from those who get killed and their possessions. And he witnesses maybe the real events of Saul and his armor bearer, as described in 1 Samuel 31, even if he couldn't actually overhear the conversation. And so before the Philistines' pillaging began the next day, you can imagine the Amalekite chap grabbing hold of the, gra- the crown and the armlets and thinking to himself, probably worth quite a few bucks in this, 
maybe I should take them. But then he thinks, you can speculate to accumulate, you've got to speculate to accumulate, so he runs off and he thinks, I can hand the crown to David and expects a whopping great big reward for being the news delivery man. And you can just imagine as he ran for two days to find David, daydreaming of being showered a hero for killing Saul. Little did he realize that David would not respond like any other contender for power that we or he might imagine. See, David's first act as the new king could so easily have been to reward a lying Amalekite for killing the Lord's anointed. Any other potential king would have done just that. But David is still humble. Still humble, meaning he won't snatch for power and the throne. David's first kingly act is to kill God's enemies. And then, rather than trying the crown on for size, David goes straight for the black tie funeral attire of his day. Verse 11, David took hold of his clothes and he tore them. All his men followed suit. I mean, what a sight. Every man now topless. Verse 12, and then they spend the rest of the day mourning, weeping and fasting. Who says real men don't cry? And David gives the Amalekite his, well, reward, as David later describes it in chapter 4 by having the Amalekite man killed. Why though? Verse 14, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? David won't lay a finger on Saul the king because God anointed him. He knows the consequences of such a move. David does the exact opposite of what we might expect He honors the throne, protects Saul at all costs, even avenges Saul when the lying Amalekite confesses to killing him. See, you can't take advantage of this sort of humility in a leader. He'll always do the right thing. He'll always do the right thing. And notice how David is so profoundly moved in his mourning. Just look at this lamenting song that he sings and that he wants the whole of Judah to know the facts as well, verse 18. And it is quite the lament, isn't it? And it does at least two things for us, two things. Firstly, it describes the reality of Hannah's prayer coming to fruition. Did you feel that happen? How the mighty have fallen? It's the refrain of the lament. Three times it comes, verse 19 verse 25, and again verse 27. And it's what God said would happen, and it has now actually happened. And that's a good thing. The mighty, they need to fall. But it's also secondly about David's genuine feelings for Saul and for Jonathan. David is really broken by this. This is real, heartfelt lament. See, David, he was loyal to Saul. Saul was David's king, his commander, and his friend. And despite the continuous murder attempts and the manhunt 
for most of his life, that never changed for David. He was that loyal to him. And and in, in contrast, Jonathan was loyal to David too. That is so very clear, isn't it? Though you might also notice just how imbalanced this song is. Did you feel that when it was read to us by Elsa? Verse 25. Verse 25 is is where the song should finish, isn't it? Ending nicely with the the, the refrain coming back and it would have topped and tailed it really nicely. That would be what we'd expect. But it's like David just can't shut up about how much more wonderful Jonathan is than Saul. I mean, look with me. Um, Look at verse 23. 23 describes both Saul and Jonathan together. And he says that they are beloved and lovely. Great words. But then verse 26, speaking just of Jonathan, those words get multiplied over and over. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of of women. See, notice the last word on Jonathan that David wants the whole of Judah to remember is this. How much Jonathan loved David. Now we might find that a bit surprising, a bit self-centered maybe from David, maybe less humble perhaps. Did David really write this funeral song to revel in how much Jonathan loved David himself? It's certainly a bit odd. Why make sure all Judah know this? See, what we need to realize is that this song isn't just a lament. See, this is David making it known that the crown prince in Jonathan, Saul's son, he actually loved David and wanted him to be the next king. His loyalty to David is the key. It's heartfelt, yet, if you like, I'm not sure this is the right word, but political move, but in a positive sense. I don't think we can think of that word political in another sense. Come and tell me if there's a better word for it later. But this is, if you like, David proclaiming his rights to the throne. In other words, Jonathan's best characteristic was that he loved David, God's next anointed king. Jonathan really got that right. Now, just as a brief aside, um, believe it or not, um, there are some modern-day scholars who have used verse 26 here to announce David and Jonathan as the first out couple in the Bible, which seems so implausible to me. And it says much more about our sexualized culture than anything else. I mean, there is no Bronze Age society that I know of where coming out would ever lead to later claiming the throne. But even more importantly, it misses the entire point of what David is actually saying. It's not that their man-to-man love was sexier than a woman's, just that it was greater than a love between man and woman. Uh, This love is the love of a devoted servant to his king. Jonathan's love for David was all about loyalty, to the anointed one. See, to such modern day scholars, I'd gently want to say, you won't understand this kind of love until you've met a married Christian man. What do I mean? Um, does the married Christian man 
loved Jesus more than his wife? I would have thought so, wouldn't you? Now, it's not that the love is the same that he has for his wife, I'd hope, but that it is greater, greater. And that's what this verse is saying, isn't it? That's what it's saying. Aside over, this lament, really it is proclaiming David's rights to the throne, which is what we see happen, actually, at the start of chapter 2. Don't worry, we're going to be very brief here indeed. David's uh, honour for Saul isn't done just yet, chapter 2. David even honours the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who, even though uh, Saul was dead and hung up like a meat trophy for the Philistines to gawp at, uh, these men, uh, brave men, rescued uh, Saul's corpse and gave him a proper burial. And chapter 2, verse 5, this is what David thinks of it. May you be blessed by the Lord. Why? Because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. I will do you good because you honoured the anointed one. See, what a new king David was already to honour the loyalty of even the saviours of his murderous predecessors' mortal remains. And so verse 7, David calls Judah and these men of Jabesh Gilead to be strong and valiant and follow him. I'm now the anointed king after Saul. Now we've got a long way to go in the story yet, haven't we? And David is only king over Judah, one little tribe. And from chapter 2, verse 8 onwards, it gets really wild I mean, Ish-bosheth. I mean, what a great name for a rival king, by the way. Son of, son of shame, son of disobedience. Ish-bosheth. He's installed as a puppet king for the rest of Israel, which in turn, it starts the craziest of civil wars. I mean, after our reading, it goes like this. There's two sides, um, uh, and they actually line up the men from either side along a swimming pool for a game, a, a contest. Uh, and the game is basically shoot them up, but with sticks. Only the sticks, their swords, and they all thrust their swords at each other's heads at exactly the same time. I mean, hey presto, everyone murders each other at exactly the same moment. It's basically the writer illustrating how stupid the ensuing civil war is going to be. And so the long, long war between Saul and David rages. Yet still, yet still, despite all the civil unrest... And the rival king of Israel, David, grows. David grows. Why? Because he's still humble. Still humble. He is the the Lord's anointed one. David doesn't get mixed up in any of the mess that's to come. He is honorable and does the right thing even to his enemies over and over again. You can read it later for yourselves. You'll see it. David is still the Lord's anointed See, he doesn't need to snatch at the crown. David still knows that God is the only one on the throne eternal. And he trusts his timing. So as we come into land, what have we seen today? We've seen David growing stronger and stronger. Why? Because David is still, after everything that's happened to him, humble, slow to grab power, quick to honour his enemies, always trusting the Lord, inquiring as to what to do next. What should I do next, Lord? It's basically his refrain through these chapters. 
Why? Why does it matter that David is still humble? Why does that matter? Why does God want a humble king to rule his people? Well, David is a good king because he's humble enough to know that only God is on the throne, even when he himself is on the throne here. Humility, you see, is the key to never disobeying God. I wonder if you've ever thought about that, Uh, never getting above your station, to trust God no matter what, Uh, even when it would be so easy to take matters into one's own hands, like, I don't know, killing your public enemy number one, or even rejoicing when he is murdered. See, David is the total opposite of Saul, who takes matters into his own hands time and time again, did things the strong man's way rather than God's way. And and see, David, he always waited on God. He waited for years and years and years to become king. Even now, he's still humble enough to wait another seven and a half years until chapter 5, verse 3, before he becomes king over all Israel. Just think what he had to actually wait through. The murder attempts, the near starvation, his family raided and kidnapped, exiled even, civil wars, losing your best friend in war, until finally God decides to finally keep the promises. David is still humble. See, putting power into a king... That isn't actually a problem, really. It just puts a lot of weight suddenly on the shoulders of that king not to abuse such power. See, power is only dangerous in the wrong hands, isn't it? Only dangerous when it's in the wrong hands. The moment one gives power to a small group of people, or indeed a single monarch, their character, it matters more than anything else in the world, doesn't it? See, if David were to grab at that power now, well, then he'd be like every other wannabe king and human. And David here, he surprises us with his humility. He's almost inhumanely humble. And that is a really wonderful thing. I wonder if sometimes we think that it's just like a a nice added bonus that Jesus was nice, that he was gentle and lowly. Perhaps we should remember that it was key for Jesus to be humble. Key. Jesus couldn't have been God's Christ in any other way. Jesus really knew that God was always in charge, that it was always not my will, but God's will. See, the only hope for us is that we have a leader who does have all the power, but who then won't compete with God to be the king of the universe. Then, and only then, will it feel like, well, sunshine on our faces. Not just for now, but forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this story of David. 
And we thank you so much that he was slow to grab power, quick to inquire of you, always wanting to keep you on the throne. Father, we so want to have that feeling of sunshine on our faces, to be ruled by a just king. And we thank you so much for this prototype shadow model of the Lord Jesus. Help us want Jesus more. Help us want him to shine on our faces like sunshine. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.